the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can find Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome back to We Get Real AF, everyone. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe to the show. All right. Well, you know, the world faces big challenges, things like poverty, climate change, and pandemics that require big decisions, and the stakes are really high. So how do we make those decisions? Artificial intelligence, or AI, collects oceans of data, but is it too much? Are the best answers getting lost in that ocean? That's one of the questions we're tackling today with our guest, Lorian Pratt. Lorian is an author, TEDx speaker, and chief scientist of Quantalia, a company that's banking on the next generation of AI, something called decision intelligence, to tackle humanity's toughest questions. Lorian, welcome to WeGraph. Yes, welcome. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Vanessa. Delighted to be here, and hi to your listeners. So before we get started taking some of these deep dives into these big questions, let our listeners know the best way that they can get a hold of you to find you on the web and recent books or anything that you've published. Sure. I wrote a book called Link, How Decision Intelligence Connects Data, Actions, and Outcomes for a Better World. You can get to the Link book through linkthebook.com, L-I-N-K, thebook.com. I also work for a company called Quantelia, and we offer decision intelligence software and solutions and lots of evangelistic effort as well. Awesome. So, Lorian, for those of us who are kind of new to this space and have just a very high level of understanding about artificial intelligence, kind of unpack for us AI and then what the difference is between AI and decision intelligence, which I understand is sort of the next wave of how artificial intelligence can be applied. So AI, I think we can think of from two perspectives. One is like really deep history. The term was invented in 1956, so it's been around for well over half a century. Usually people think of AI as whatever is the next thing, whatever makes computers behave a little more like humans and makes them seem a little bit more intelligent. And that definition has shifted radically over the 50-year period. There have been AI winters and AI summers. The last AI summer was in the 1980s, where the idea was that if we built computers that had lots of logic in them, you know, if this, then that, and we put all that logical rules and facts into a computer and turned the crank, then the great answers to the universe would come out. And uh, that didn't really pan out very well, despite lots of investment by the U.S. and by Japan. We had another AI winter after the 1980s, and now we have a new AI summer that started, you know, you could arguably say around 2009, 2010, when people stopped focusing on logic and started focusing on data. They said there's all this data that's been created by organizations, you know, your customer data, your advertising data. Can we repurpose that data to get computers to be more intelligent and to drive some business value for some organizations? So if we fast forward to today, AI is really everywhere. It's in your pocket. It's in your phone. It's helping you draw a little thing on your on your handwritten signature recognizer. AI is 
figuring out what letters you drew. When you're talking to your phone, AI is figuring out what words you're saying. And when Facebook or Google or one of those organizations decides what ad or content to show you, AI is embedded there. So it's really very ubiquitous. AI is all around us. So now talk to us a little bit about decision intelligence, because I think that will be a new term to a lot of people. And again, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but AI collects all this data and historically we've taken the data and then we've cleansed it to come to a decision kind of, right? And and decision intelligence sort of reverses that process a bit and starts with what do we want to get to and then works backwards. Is that kind of high level what's happening? No, that's absolutely correct, Sue. So decision intelligence recognizes that the big AI successes right now really happen in a very small subset of the situations, what we call use cases. And those are situations where the decision is really simple, like, should I show you an ad or not? Because we think it'll lead you to click on the ad and buy the product. Really simple chain of events that starts with the showing of the ad, or it starts with the keyword you might use. Then you show the ad, then you click on the ad, then you engage with the vendor, and then you might draw the product, buy the product, right? So it's just not a very long or complex chain of events. And what we've done in AI is we've really maximized that kind of situation. And advertising fits that pattern, and um, face recognition fits that pattern. You know, which person am I seeing? It's a pretty easy decision. It turns out that's kind of a radical subset of what people want computers to be able to do for them. And there's another way of thinking about problems where you're not saying, let's make a quick decision based on some data. Instead, you're saying, I'm making a difficult decision that's going to impact human lives like COVID or climate or poverty. And I've got all kinds of actions I could take. And I might be a government. I might be an individual. I might be some organization. How do I get from those actions I might take across to the outcomes? And this is where really 95% of the tough decisions sit is in this space between actions and outcomes. So decision intelligence just adds that action to outcome layer on top of AI. And I guess the other way to think about it is that AI is good for sort of low level reasoning, like, is this a cat? Is this a fish? And DI is good for these sort of higher level reasoning, like, if I put masks on people and I have a social distancing campaign, how will that make the particles move in the space? And how will people get dosages and how will they get sick? So it's just this sort of long chain of events. And then there's also typically feedback effects in there and reputation and behavior and all kinds of weird stuff. When we start with a decision, as you said, Sue, instead of starting with the data, Starting with the day is like looking under the lamppost and saying, okay, are my keys there? Starting with the decision is saying, what do people really care about? What are the really hard problems and how can we solve them? If I was an organization that called you up and said, hey, I have this COVID-19 solution and how I would implement it from start to finish, I want to get a really good grasp of how decision intelligence um, affects us and why it is so important right now and for the future. Sure. (laughs) Decision intelligence is a methodology as well as software solution. And so the very first thing you do, I'm going to teach it to you in the next 60 seconds. If you hear nothing else in this podcast, this is what you must do. And many organizations don't do this thing. And it's usually valuable. Take your team, whoever, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Let's say it's COVID. Let's say you're a sporting event center and you're trying to decide how to keep your fans safe, for instance, Um, and brainstorm through your outcomes. We want to keep our fans safe. We want to stay in business. 
Um, ideally, we'd like to have a positive impact on the local job market, you know, really, really go far afield and have some funny and bad ideas at the same time. And then, um, then go to brainstorming through the actions you could take. And again, don't try to analyze if these are good actions or not. You have to just keep that out of the room. Um, we could buy bunny rabbits and have people chase them around. You know, start it out with something silly, right? So that everybody knows bad and funny ideas are welcome. That'll kind of free up your creative juices. And then go through, you know, what are the things we could do? Well, we could have signs up that stopped people that said, you know, please wear your mask. We can have funny signs up that said, you know, you're a bad man if you don't wear a mask. We could have social distancing signs. We could have social distancing enforcing police. You know, long, long list of what typical organizations might do. If you do nothing else but have a safe, open-ended brainstorming conversation about your actions and outcomes, and you do you never read my book, and you never implement any AI technology, you'll go a really long way aligning because people make hundreds of decisions every day. And if you're if you know half the team is aiming for one thing and you know profitability three months from now, and the rest of the team is aiming for another thing, profitability six months or 12 months from now, for instance, you're gonna be pulling in opposite directions. So simply aligning around what are the things I can do to accomplish my goals? And then what, what am I going to measure to know if I've achieved my goals? Simply doing that is a prerequisite for all the AI foo technology and all of that. And it helps you create a, um, an architecture that helps you then figure out where the AI fits into that action to outcome pathway. That makes so much sense. And it seems so common sense to me, like make sure that we're all rowing the boat in the same direction, right? <laughs> That's absolutely part of it. We've kind of got sort of a fetish with data, you know, and so we'll jump. It's like in the old days of computer software, you get a bunch of people in the room and you say, let's all start coding because software is great, as opposed to figuring out what your requirements are and what you might need to accomplish and all of that. So we're sort of going through that same transition with AI, where it's not just the fetish with the data and the algorithms and all of that, but we're stepping back and saying, let's not just send people down a path to build these things. Let's understand there's a rigor and a discipline and a way of doing this right and a way of doing this wrong. And, you know, there's also cultural reasons, Sue. It used to be things changed so slowly that our outcomes were sort of tacit. They were well understood. And so not saying them out loud on a regular basis, that was fine because it was sort of built into the culture of a company or an organization. These days, the outside world is globalized. It's changing very fast. Things like pandemics are invisible and the science is constantly changing. Um, and of course, other kinds of decisions are similarly um, complex, especially for large transnational organizations, as well as startups. And so we're just not in the cultural habit of adapting to a, to a situation that's changing all the time. And so we're just not in the habit of having a really solid best practice around aligning and then realigning around outcomes and actions. Why don't organizations do that? Do we get, do we get overwhelmed by the amount of data that we're taking in all the time and we just sort of lose our true north of where we're all trying to get? Is that part of the reason? Sure. Um, so if I think of one of the large three-letter technology companies that I work for, um, they've got maybe 100 AI applications across their organization. And for each one, they have sort of thought through, okay, what decision does this support? 
But because they started with the data and they cleansed all the data first and they governed all the data first and they gathered all the data first, they actually end up wasting a lot of time. Um, and so it's not that it's impossible to support good decisions by starting with data, but you, you have a lot more blind alleys and you waste a lot of time cleansing. I like to say 10% of the data has 90% of the value. And the trick is to know which 10% of the data to use. And you don't know that until you know the decision that is being supported by that machine learning model. And you would not believe, it's another classic mistake. In addition to not staying aligned around actions to outcomes, another you know, sort of epic fail classic mistake I see is that people put all this work, they say, how can we talk about the AI until our data is ready? Because the AI is only as good as the data. No, the AI is only as good as the 10% of the data that has 90% of the power, right? And you can waste huge amounts of time cleansing and managing the wrong data. So right now with AI, if you have um, technology that uses AI, if you don't have decision intelligence, you don't really have anything um, basically telling you what the data is doing for you. Is that kind of how it is right now? And then decision intelligence informs that for you. I'm just trying to connect the dots with that intersection between AI and decision intelligence. Yeah, and I love that you said that, Vanessa, because what are we doing when we go from actions to outcomes? Why are we doing this action? Well, you know, why are we putting up signs so that people will have greater distance? Why do we want people to have greater distance so that their particles won't hit them? Why do we not want particles to hit them so they won't get a dosage? Why do we not want to get a dosage so that they don't get sick, so that they don't die? So what we're really doing is we go from actions to outcomes. It's the why chain, right? And by the way, just to finish the picture, the how chain goes the other word. The other way. How do we make sure we don't have a super spreader event attributed to our sports facility and go out of business and have to declare bankruptcy? Well, the way we do that is we make sure that people don't get sick. How do we make sure we so so we've got why going from actions to outcomes and then how going backwards from outcomes to actions. And so again, decision intelligence is sort of like a visual map. Your podcast listeners can't see me, but I'm like waving my hands and being very visual. This so reminds me, it's almost intertwined with uh, an episode we have with um, Indy Young, where she talks about being very intentional in your decision-making process, in your team building. Let's spend the extra time to, to get to the why. So what we're doing is we're creating this sort of unified visual thing that is a visual picture of why and how and by the way, also a visual picture of unintended consequences and grifting and where AI fits in and uh, what it means to have an ideology and all kinds of other things that kind of go wrong when we make decisions badly. And you've actually had COVID-19 yourself. So I've heard you use this as an example a lot. Like, what's your advice? What are we doing wrong as a culture, as a society in controlling or trying to control this pandemic? And I, I mean, that's a big question, right? And that's that's a lot to ask, but are there some really obvious things that we could be doing yep. differently? Yeah, we're focusing too much on pharmaceutical interventions. And we're also assuming that if you give data to people, that will help them make good decisions. And if I could unpack that for a minute, that would be great. We've already cured COVID. Look at countries in which there's no COVID. It's cured. It's simply a matter of behavior. We don't need a vaccine to cure COVID. We need behavior change. And we're systematically ignoring good investments in behavior change strategies, what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions, MPIs. And we're systematically ignoring what it takes to help people really understand what's essentially something that's invisible, exponential, you know, feedback loops. We need to own that as strongly as we own new vaccine development. So we're systematically ignoring this path from individual actions to outcomes or that sports arena or event center or restaurant, its actions. 
you know, to, to the outcome that it doesn't want to be the source of a super spreader event. We're not taking that pathway seriously. It's funny. I, I heard a, a podcast from the uh, Journal of American Medical Association, the JAMA podcast, and they interviewed some people, had fantastic new research. And this gets to my second point. Great new research about uh, pandemic in schools. And, you know, here, here's the situation in which school pandemics, um, virus, viruses will spread and incidences will spread. And so they gave all their you know, well-controlled research and all their data and their, you know, T-tests and all of that. And then the interviewer turned to um, the question, OK, what decision should we make? And it was such a contrast if you were listening with this lens because it became very qualitative. And the end, and they said, well, I think we should do this, or we think we should do that. So that translation between the people who are experts at the data, right, and making a prediction about the incidents, which is where we've been focusing, to how can we move from a prediction of what's going to happen to using that data to help us to decide the things that we have control over in agency, what should we do? So the predictions kind of form the context, you know, within this context that incidents is going to go, if we do this, what will that change? And how does mask wearing interact with social distancing, interact with HVAC, interact with air filters? You know, these very complex decisions that play out within a particular space. So those are the two big things, just to bottom line that, because I'm being pretty long-winded. <laughs> one is, one is um, paying attention to the behavioral side and the action-to-outcome path and to know that COVID is solved. If only we can get those best practices, those best behavioral practices, you know, installed in the United States and not to be, I mean, don't stop vaccine research. Just balance it a little with this thing where we've already cured it, right? And then also to recognize decision makers don't need more data. That's data theater. I promise if you mailed me a database, Sue, that had all the predictions of COVID in it, that wouldn't tell me what to do. That wouldn't tell me whether to advise my mom, you know, to go to the grocery store or whether, you know, the sports arenas I'm working with, you know, they should, you know, what they should do about mask wearing enforcement. So data is not the same as decisions when we need to make that bridge. Well, and the data is only as good as the information being input into the system, right? I mean, that's the biggest thing. And there's been a lot of confusion. I mean, you've seen even um, in Florida with the data that's gone in and the numbers and the people who live there versus the people that are visiting and how they count them. And then if people die, it, it's just, it, it's so convoluted and confusing. So I think yeah. that that's like, you know, garbage in, garbage out sometimes. Well, so here's some good news. You can make good decisions with very messy data. Right. So let's think about my decision whether to turn left or right if I'm driving a car. Right. I might have crap data about what the sky is doing. I might not really have good data in my head about what color the buildings are. I might not know who's in the backseat of my car. Right. So there's massive amounts of data that can be really, really crappy. What really matters is this one little piece of data, which is, is there a car in my way if I'm going to turn left or right? Okay, and I don't even need very precise data about the position of that car, right? It can be really, you know, it can be like plus or minus 20 feet, right? So crap data can still support good decisions. And that's what people forget because in academics, we're rewarded our Kaggle competitions. You know, the better our models are, the more accurate our data is, you know, obviously the better the decisions are. And it's actually a very different bar. It's a very different way of evaluating data when it's relative to a particular decision you're going to make. It really changes your lens. And you can sometimes have garbage in, not garbage out. Mm. Call me crazy, but it's, but it's true. <laughs> interesting. That's very interesting. Well, and, you know, I'm thinking about what you said about we have a cure for COVID. It's true if 
you can get everybody to do the right thing and to do the responsible thing. But that's, that is the challenge which has faced humanity always and probably always will, right? And I don't know if that technology has an answer for that. Well, I think in, we shouldn't be the, like the perfect be the enemy of the good, okay? If we can get, you know, 10% more people to wear masks, we'll save, you know, 5,000 grandmas a year from now, right? And so what I'm saying is, is not that this is the be all and end all, but that it hasn't received enough attention. So I'm like building this immersive video game where you move around in this space and you can see the particles and you make decisions about masks and other sorts of things. And so you're really sort of living in this space. And, you know, I'm not sure that's going to change behavior, but we need to be experimenting with these things that are truth based, that are grounded in data, that are grounded in AI, but also have this behavior change component to them. When you mentioned that, um, Lorian, like I'm thinking of the PPE big mask that covers most of your face. And if there was augmented reality situation on it where if somebody sneezed, you could actually see the particles and where they lie and maybe like have something play so that you you get the impact of it. You you see it, you, you like experiencing it from that lens, quote unquote. Yeah, I love that way you're saying it. And, you know, what that brings me to this other concept, which is, we're really, con- we're, our brains are not designed to handle situations like COVID because it's invisible, it's exponential, actions happen, you know, three weeks later, somebody dies. I promise you, if it wasn't invisible and it was people walking around with knives that are as dangerous as the COVID, we would be having a different reaction to it. And so what can we do? We can use VR, right? Exactly, Vanessa, to, to, to bridge that gap between the things we, you know, what's great about computers is they can show us invisible things, things that are too small to see or too big to see or that play out over too long time periods that don't usually drive our decisions. And we should be using technology to, for, for exactly that kind of purpose. Yes, exactly. Being able to visualize the invisible. That's, I think, where you make that leap from the theoretical to this is real. This is this is a real thing. And this is what it looks like. And this is what it's doing. And that's when people will go, whoa, wait a minute. Now I need to really pay attention. And so, Maybe we'll see that behavioral change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. And what are we doing instead? We're sending you charts and graphs and spreadsheets. Hello, mm-hmm. ladies. It just isn't the kind of thing, it doesn't speak to our lizard brain, right? It doesn't really grab us where we make our day-to-day decisions. So we need to get to a different level that's much more intuitive. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. So tell us about this experience that you said you're working on uh, to help people visualize the particles and visualize uh, COVID. Tell us more about that, how that's going to be deployed. Sure. So um, we've got a, so, so as, as I was sick with COVID, you know, I kind of got a little bit bored and I'm, I'm a coder girl geek at heart. So when I want to do something for fun, I, I start coding. And so I built this thing based on the Unity platform, which is a game platform where you can send people walking around. And then I, I, I worked with a, a scientist uh, who, who used to be at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, who's an expert at how particles spread. And we built a virus particle model so that you could see the particles coming out of somebody's face. You could see the droplets and how them, they become fomites, which is the stuff that lands. And you could see the aerosolized particles and move around the space. 
And then you could introduce different interventions. So you can experiment with, well, what if we change social distancing? You see all the avatars move apart from each other. And you can see that their virus crowds, clowns aren't making it across that larger gap. And then you can say, what if we put masks on everybody? Now you see the virus clouds get smaller, right? And so, and then, and then the dosages that they pick up. So, so both, you know, the masks help you not infect other people. It also helps you not get infected by others. And then like there's this running tally that says how many people are sick, you know, how many people are infectious. And you can see these people walking around in, in a space. So I built that. We got, um, very grateful to the UK government. We got about a quarter million dollars in grant funding, um, just got the second tranche of that recently. And um, so we're kind of in the midst of R&D to get that thing to market. I want to I wanna deploy it at schools. I think K through 12 schools would be the best place to start, I think. We'll see. That could be such a cool app, you know, for everybody to download yeah. on their phone and just really see what we're talking about. I love that. That's a right. great idea. I think I'm going to put the Vanessa feature in there too, yeah. which is the AR. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Well, I'm just thinking the AR on those clear masks and to your point where you could like, you could see people Mm -hmm. social distancing the six feet or however many feet it would eventually it'll be um, between two people. But you can see that on that mask of like where you should be standing versus someone else or you're alerted or you have some um, haptic sensation as to like when you should move. Uh, It'd be a pricey (laughs) mask, but behavioral change impacting people Mm -hmm. and them influencing that them seeing it for themselves. I think that's like where you're going to start seeing the action and the the domino effect. Because right now, uh, apart from somebody having a consequence of a fine or whatever, you have those people that are still going to believe that one, it's a hoax, it doesn't exist, or they're they're quote unquote immune to whatever's going to come their way. But when they see it, it's a different story. Or they've had it and they didn't get that sick and they're like, oh, this isn't that big a mm-hmm. deal or whatever. Which I think is a problem with a lot of, of young people, unfortunately. I mean, not to generalize, but people aren't scared of things until they see the true consequence of them. And then mm-hmm. a lot of times it's too late. It's funny. One, one version of the software had had like, you know, future people in it. And I had the future people sort of dying and coughing on the floor. And my team decided to nix that. They said, no, no, you have to take the future people out. But I thought it was very visceral, right, to to compress time down and say, you know, here's the future people you're affecting and to show them dying. But that was too much. So I still got the future in. I just need to turn it back on again if we decide it. And Vanessa, to your point about the masks, um, think of Pokemon Go and Ingress. I don't think we have to wait for masks. I think we can just use our existing mobile phones. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So tell us about your career. A journey, Lorian, and, and how you got to where you are now. Um, just walk us through that a little bit and, and your learnings along the way as a woman in really emerging technologies. <laughs> yeah, so um, I learned basic to impress a boy when I was 14 in high school in the 1970s. I'll admit it. Um, and, and that boy always laughs when he sees my podcast because he knows who he is. Um, and then I, I, I went to Dartmouth because uh, they'd invented BASIC at Dartmouth. It was a big CS school at the time. I got my BA there in, in 1979. Uh, sorry, 83. I, I went there in, 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 uh, in 79. And then I went on um, to work at IBM and a couple of other places and eventually got my master's and PhD at Rutgers. Went on to be a college professor at the Colorado School of Mines. That was a little toxic, and so I um, left uh, to go back to being a coder, and then strange series of events ended up as a technology analyst for Frost & Sullivan. Got sick of writing and wanted to do after about a decade, and, and then um, started my own company, Quantelia, um, in, in 2010, and we've been around for 10 years. 
And when all is said and done, I've been offering like applied machine learning solutions for about 30 years. And then we've been offering decision intelligence stuff since we invented most of it or a lot of it um, for about 10 years. I think I confused um, competence with confidence. I think I didn't reach out to mentors enough. Um, I think I would have done much better if it understood kind of the un the hidden networks of people that help to support people, not just not just as you make decisions in your career, but as you get um, supported in, in feeling like you know what you're doing. I thought if I had three computer science degrees that I'd be untouchable, right? But my confidence is still through the toilet a lot of the time. So I think, you know, one of my big lessons learned is – you know, to surround myself with, with people who, who believe in me and uh, not just to depend on, you know, all the degrees to make that happen. And what has your journey been like as a woman in technology? For a long time, I didn't feel very discriminated against. And then I realized it was all happening in very subtle, invisible ways that I wasn't realizing. And I think, as I think about where I stand in my career right now, and, you know, I've published you know, the three computer science degrees and all the publications and the grants and inventing. I invented something called machine learning transfer, which is starting to take off and be important 30 years after writing about it and then inventing decision intelligence. I think I should be a lot more successful than I am right now. And I think if I had made those decisions, I would be. But it's not too late. Just hold on your hat. So give it another year or two. We'll get there. I'm curious. Um, in 83... You're getting your CS degree. Is that what you had mentioned? Yeah. How many yeah. other women were in your class? Oh, gosh. It was very rare. It was, I would say it's one in 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's more frequent than it is now, right? So, yeah. Yeah. We've got a real pipeline issue. I'm curious. You mentioned that you you don't feel you're as successful as you should be. How do you define success? Because, I mean, we look at you, you're pretty successful. We reach out to you because of that. So um, imposter syndrome, we always talk about it, is too much alive and well, especially in our community of, of strong women. And we want to break that barrier and we want to rewrite that narrative. So can you unpack that a little? I'm definitely successful from a reputational point of view. My company has not been as financially successful as I think it should be. I mean, we're basically innovating an entirely new uh, discipline of AI, and yet I'm not getting the meetings that I think I I would if I had more mentors and guidance and stuff like that. Um, and 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 yet I'm pretty sure I'm right. I mean, we're winning grants that are very competitive. Gartner has decision intelligence on its hype cycle. Uh, Cassie Kazerkoff at Google has trained 20,000 people in decision intelligence. I mean, the, the validation is really strong that I'm right. And yet financially, you know, in terms of um, our sales and all of that, uh, we haven't been as successful as I think we should have been. All that will change. Just stand by. <laughs> well, you are so on the forefront, right? And and you're so cutting edge that I think that's hard maybe to be the groundbreaker in, and to be the first one to come up with a way, a really revolutionary way of thinking about a technology like artificial intelligence. Like yeah. you're saying, it's sort of a, a foundational difference. Instead of starting with the data, you're starting with the decision to go to circle back to the beginning of our conversation. And that's a, yeah. an uphill climb to get people to think differently, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, you know, another way to cast you know, my situation is I aimed for a really high bar. I mean, when I invented transfer learning, that was a really high bar. And here we are 30 years later, 
finally transfers, you know, core to most of the really successful machine learning methods, but it took 30 years. And when you're trying to innovate an entirely new discipline, you know, I think you're right, Sue, to some extent, it is just super hard. I mean, I've read about innovation a bit and, you know, the guy who invented Ethernet, you know, he's evangelizing that for 10 years in cheap hotels, driving all over the country, you know, talking about how important Ethernet is. You know, I guess there's an argument that says when you're creating something this new and this different, it's just by definition an uphill struggle. You'll so, be an yeah. overnight success that took 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it always seems like, right? Yeah, we're yeah, we're, we're yeah. peeling back the layers and unveiling it. That's usually not the case. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. It's all good. Um, so we've talked about kind of past, present. What's the future of AI and decision intelligence? Where can we, where do you envision this 10, 20 years from now? I think DI will be the ubiquitous paradigm for how we use AI. And we will realize that there was like this first wave of AI successes, which were around marketing and advertising in these simple decisions based primarily on data. And we'll look back and we'll realize that was just the tip of the iceberg, that there were, you know, hundreds of decisions from, you know, what's your HR policy to whether I should acquire a company, should I launch a new product, what should the product features be? You know, and and in the nonprofit sector, you know, what policy should we have at a government level around agriculture, which is a big project I'm doing, or or COVID, which is another one. We'll look back and we'll realize that without that way of talking and just drawing a map of decisions, um, we were really um, artificially limiting ourselves. So like today, you wouldn't have a complex project unless you had a Gantt chart, would you? And you wouldn't build a uh, a skyscraper without a blueprint. Hello, we have these mapping visualizations. And it turns out that in a complex interdependent world, we need a map of a decision. Again, this little picture from the actions to the outcomes. And we'll look back and we go, oh my God, how could we have ever made it without without those pictures? And my map, the way I do it, is just the version 0.1. I'm sure it'll evolve, you know, to have some more sophistication and usability. But I think we will have a visual way of representing decisions. And we'll think, we didn't used to think of software as something we could engineer, right? Um, and so today we don't think of decisions as something we can engineer, like we can design it, we can create it, continuous improvement, collaborate on it. That's, that's how we'll see things by the end of the century. And it's so uh, industry agnostic. I mean, decisions are made every day, all day. So that's, yeah. I think, the, yeah. the beauty in that, in this technology. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think so. Tell us a little bit about your team. I know that when we had our our call before this interview, you were telling us the dynamics and the differences in the dynamics with the company where there's mostly women in the culture. So I think there's a difference between having lots of women in the culture and having certain cultural norms that are traditionally associated with women. And so, you know, I think we do have this tendency to say, let's get more women on boards and let's get more women on in company leadership. And I think that is often necessary, sometimes not necessary, but definitely not sufficient. We need to, for the future of technology to succeed, is we need to start incorporating certain best practices that are traditionally associated with the feminine, right? And I'll tell you an example in a moment, but aren't necessarily always associated with women. In fact, I know men who embody this more and women who embody this less. So the way I see things is, you want to have a company that can be very creative and not just a company, but a government or many kinds of organizations that's creative in a very high stress environment. And, and in combination with that, there's the question of wellness and kindness and, 
and you know creating safe spaces and all of that. And I think you can break any th- any two of those, but you can't break all three. So you can't have a highly creative environment that's also very stressful, that's also very unkind, right? So, so it, you know, if you look, I, I took notes to make sure I got this right. A bureaucracy is one in which you in which you don't have high stress, right? But you do have typically kind of that hierarchical, unkind, traditional um, way of managing, and and then you also require some amount of um, creativity. A uh, production line, you don't require much creativity, so you can have unkindness and high stress. The knowledge economy breaks it the third way. So, so if you're going to have high stress and you're going to demand high creativity, you must take wellness more seriously. And so getting back to women, there are certain things that are traditionally associated with the feminine that go along with wellness, like kindness and safe spaces and collaboration. And the example I like to bring into it is, is when things fail, when things are going wrong, right? Um, you know, the traditional kind of business culture is we hide our weaknesses. We come to the table and we, you know, pump up our resume and we say we can do anything. And, and, and I think that's not as functional if we're trying to have a highly creative organization in a very stressful environment. I think we need to come to the table and say, here's my strengths and here's my weaknesses. And if I fail at something, we don't just, you know, sh- show you the bone and kick you off the island. Instead, we say, we look at it from a systems point of view. And you say, if you failed at something, or you know, let's not call it fail, because that has a lot of judgment. You know, if there's something that we could do better, let's say what we could have done to support you better. What was it about the system in which we put you that made that not work very well? What are your strengths and weaknesses? Without any judgment, we all have weaknesses. There's all, every single one of us has things we're good at and things we're not so good at. And so coming to the table and being honest about that, and when there's a failure saying, oh, we didn't fit the puzzle pieces together quite well. Let's work together as a team in a no-fault way of doing things to find new ways of working together such that we can have that high creativity in a very high-stress environment. Now, again, from a woman's point of view, those kinds of, you know, coming to the table, vulnerable um, um, norms for business culture are traditionally more associated with women-based companies. But again, there's a lot of men that value that, and there's a lot of women who don't. We all come with, you know, sometimes decades of baggage that allows us to to make that shift to that new kind of norms. And it's some, for some people, it's very hard. You know, when somebody's failing, they want to, you know, kick them off the island as opposed to kind of to work on that system and try to figure out how we can fit people together better. Well, we talk about that word failure, which I agree. There's so many words, especially now, that are being reimagined and have a new face like vulnerability, feminism. Mm. And I think failure Mm. should have that. And we talk about that a lot because it's experimentation, Mm. right? You know, you fail, you learn from it, you grow, and you're going to get a better product next time because of that learning curve. So I I agree with you, Sue, and I talk about it all the time. We've talked about it with other guests. And I hope that that's another, um, it goes to an evolution, that word, because it shouldn't have that bad connotation. Well, and I think innovation requires failure. I mean, if people are going to innovate and they're really going to put themselves out there and try something new, they're taking a risk that it could not go the way they plan on the first iteration. And for Mm -hmm. that very reason, if companies want to be innovative, they need to allow for things not to be perfectly fleshed out the first time. If they want to have an innovative workforce, it needs to be safe for people to quote unquote fail. I agree. Yeah. 
to fail. You need to normalize that. And when that failure happens, you then need to have a process for, okay, let's evolve that and grow. That's not as simple as let's just kick somebody off the island and, and uh, you know, not have them within the company anymore, which I think is kind of the business norm, um, which is that you hide, you hide your weaknesses. And then, of course, we get the kind of failures that happen when you're not open about, you know, the shape of your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And I think this is... I feel really strongly this is the future. We will not make it. I, mean, I feel very strongly unless we have these three things in balance, wellness, stress, and creativity. If those aren't in balance, if we keep trying to demand all three of the negative sides of that, we're not going to make it. We have to have kindness in the workplace. Agree. And I love the agree. I, I can see your decision map, <laughs> you know, your decision thinking <laughs> there, because I'm looking at the triangle in my head and it just makes a lot of sense. Whenever you don't have one of those three things, you're right. It's a leg of the stool is not there and the stool's going to fall yes. down. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things about decision intelligence is it helps us to surface those things that are often more intangible, like brand reputation, morale, you know, mental health, things like that, that don't typically get taken into account because we can't keep them all in our heads when we're making complex decisions. So get them out of our heads, get them onto a map, use AI to help support some of the links in that decision. And and then we can do much, much better. So we have our lightning round. And this is just a set of questions that are fun that we ask all of our guests just to get to know them a little bit better. All right. Starting off with what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would like to learn more about healthcare and epidemiology because I think that even if we have a vaccine for uh, COVID, um, we're going to have a series of additional uh, similar kinds of pandemics and we need to shift as a society to doing better at this. And so really understanding healthcare and how COVID spreads through a population. I would love to be an epidemiologist. Yeah. What resources, Lauren, do you wish existed for women who are in technology or wishing to get into technology fields? I wish there were funds for foundational innovators that were easy to obtain. I wish that there was something that sort of counteracted the angel networks that are often supporting entrepreneurs uh, that came out of the government that recognized when people are pushing boundaries and pushing, pushing new fields into new places, that uh, we need to support that. What celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie? Jodie Foster, for sure. Awesome. Finish the sentence. Women are? Often the embodiment of cultural norms needed for technology to evolve to the next level. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> that's yeah. really good. That's, it. that's intense. Uh, what are three pieces of advice you'd give a younger self? Confidence is not the same as competence, that just because you have advanced degrees does not mean you don't need people supporting you and you need don't doesn't mean you don't need to attract mentors and teams of people that support you, especially if you're doing really hard, innovative work. And so that's kind of number two is is don't be shy. Ask for mentors, ask for supporters. And their job isn't just to give you practical advice, but to give you psychological support and, and to loan their, their bravery. And the last thing I would say is have some perspective. Don't take things too seriously. Try to laugh a lot. Describe the future in one word. Complex. If you could start a movement that would be guaranteed to go global, what would it be? Decision intelligence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that one coming. Yay, <laughs> Yay. And I am, so stay tuned. Uh, yeah, you go, girl. So, Lauren, last one. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. 
Fix the great big gnarly unsolved problems. I love that. Okay, that needs to be on a t-shirt or something. <laughs> a coffee mug. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Lauren, you've been great. We've really appreciated your time today. Um, And just unpacking this very, it sounds very lofty and complex, but it's actually just really smart, common sense approach to making decisions, right? Which is start with where you want to go. And and just really appreciate all the things that you've shared with us. So keep being amazing. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sue and Vanessa. Thank you to your listeners for their time too. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. And we want to give a special thanks to Florence Lumsden, our associate producer for the We Get Real AF podcast. You can find Flo on LinkedIn at Florence Lumsden, L-U-M-S-D-E-N, or at her website, danceandflowproductions.com. That's D-A-N-C-I-N-F-L-O Productions. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.